What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day Savings happening now at The Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. What makes a person legally insane? Can you know the difference between right and wrong and still be considered insane? These are some of the questions we've considered this season on The Thread, exploring the insanity defense. But there are still others. Like how can the law keep up with what we are learning from science about the human brain? Can any of us really control our actions? And what should we do about those of us who cannot? In July 2012, a graduate student named James Holmes walked through the doors of the Century 16 movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Witnesses say Holmes fired into the air and then started shooting into the crowd. Holmes killed 12 people and injured 58 others. He thought the killings would boost his own, quote, human capital. He called this his mission, and the mission was to kill as many people as possible. Holmes pled not guilty by reason of insanity at his trial, as we heard in episode one this season. There will be no doubt in your minds by the end of this trial that Mr. Holmes is severely mentally ill. None. Holmes was mentally ill. But a Colorado jury did not think he was insane under the law after listening to witnesses and psychiatric experts. They decided Holmes knew the difference between right and wrong at the time he committed the crime, the standard for legal insanity in Colorado and many other states. How in the world can someone who kills 12 people and injures another 58 and leaves a terrible tragedy in a theater at midnight, how in the world can that person be viewed as sane in any reasonable sense. Holmes was found guilty, just like the vast majority of criminal defendants today who invoke the insanity defense. To understand why requires a journey through history. The conviction of James Holmes really begins almost two centuries ago in England. At the time, Queen Victoria and the British House of Lords could not have imagined a crime like the one committed by Holmes. But if you look close enough, 
Their fingerprints are all over his fate. I'm Sean Braswell. Each season on The Thread, we unravel the stories behind some of the most important lives and events in history to discover, essentially, how one thing leads to another. This season, we've explored the crazy history of perhaps the most controversial defense in the criminal law, not guilty by way of insanity. From James Holmes to Lorena Bobbitt to John Hinckley Jr., some of history's most notorious criminal defendants are linked by this common thread. In the last episode, we heard about the first use of the temporary insanity defense in American law, the case of Daniel Sickles. He was the New York congressman who murdered Barton Key, the son of Francis Scott Key, just yards from the White House in 1859. I mean, literally, if it was an episode of House of Cards, you wouldn't believe it, right? But it really happened. You know, there's really nothing like it in American political history. Sickles' legal dream team relied on an older case from another country in order to save the congressman from being hanged. In this episode, we will finish this season's thread with that case in England, where the modern insanity defense really began. We'll also dive into whether the insanity defense really makes sense, especially in light of what we know about mental illness and the human brain today. We'll learn how the defense sits uncomfortably at the intersection of law and human psychology, how it challenges lawyers, judges, and juries in their pursuit of justice, and how it speaks to things that all of us hold dear, such as moral responsibility, free will, even our own sanity. Our story this season really begins in England in the 19th century. There are actually two English cases that ushered in today's insanity defense. Both were attempts to murder a British leader. The first was in May of 1800, when a former soldier tried to kill King George III. Andrea Alden is the author of Disorder in the Court, Morality, Myth, and the Insanity Defense. James Hadfield was a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars. He received some sort of head injury that was documented. At the time, we didn't have the words traumatic brain injury, but that's basically what it was. Hadfield received eight blows to the head from a saber while fighting for his country. It was widely acknowledged that he came back from the war not the same person that he went. Um, Clearly, what he had been through affected him and affected his personality and his behavior. Hadfield was convinced that the second coming of Jesus Christ depended upon his own death, that he himself needed to be killed in order to fulfill a sacred prophecy. So his plan was to attempt to assassinate the king with the hopes that he would, in the process, be killed by people trying to defend the king, and then he could fulfill this prophecy somehow. And so, as King George III and his royal entourage entered a theater in London on May 15, 1800, Hadfield fired a pistol at the monarch. The shots missed the king. Hadfield was apprehended and charged with high treason, but the serious nature of Hadfield's crime meant he received a top-notch legal defender. He had what was really the first kind of star defense attorney in a notable insanity defense trial, who was Thomas Erskine, um, who really kind of set the bar for making arguments about the legal standards for insanity that kind of changed the game going forward. Thomas Erskine was the son of an English lord and the most sought-after criminal defense lawyer of his era. But at the time, the causes of mental illness, including the delusions experienced by James Hadfield, were not well understood. So at this point, we still are looking at conceptions of mental illness as something either animal-like or childlike, where the criminal either had 
the lack of ability to understand the nature of his or her actions. Um, and the, some of the judges would say either they had no more understanding than a wild beast or than a child. In other words, to be insane in 19th century England meant you were raving mad or infantile. Hadfield's lawyer, Thomas Erskine, set out to change that. He felt that the, um, the concept of having no more understanding than a child or a wild beast was um, far too narrow of a construction of what mental illness as it pertains to criminal justice um, looked like. So he argued that it needed to be expanded to encompass um, more people and their experiences. At trial, Erskine argued that Hadfield was insane, not because he acted like a child or a wild beast, but because he was delusional at the time of the shooting. He'd lost touch with the world around him as a result of his head injuries. To make his case, Erskine called 20 witnesses to the stand in a trial that took just six hours. These included doctors who claimed Hadfield's actions were the result of his brain injury. Hadfield was found to be insane and not guilty of treason, thanks to Erskine's landmark defense. Hadfield was spared execution. Instead, he was ordered to spend the rest of his life in a psychiatric hospital. The Hadfield incident could have been a small footnote in history. The king wasn't harmed, after all. Instead, it laid the groundwork for an even bigger insanity case in England four decades later, one that still governs how many insanity cases play out today. Daniel McNaughton was a lowly Scottish woodcutter, someone whose name would usually be lost to the sands of history. Instead, his name is familiar to most lawyers and law students today, and is synonymous with the insanity defense. And here's why. The story begins when McNaughton decides to murder a British leader, even though the person he shot wasn't his intended target. McNaughton um, shot a man named Edward Drummond in the middle of the street in London, middle of the day, just walked up behind him and shot him. So it turned out that McNaughton believed he was shooting the prime minister at the time, and Edward Drummond was actually his private secretary. McNaughton claimed that the prime minister and his political party were persecuting him. We would probably recognize Mr. McNaughton as suffering from something like paranoid schizophrenia if we were to get him in the care of a psychiatrist today. But unfortunately, at the time, we didn't quite understand what that meant. Edward Drummond died from his wounds, and McNaughton was charged with murder. His trial began six weeks later in London before a large crowd of spectators, including the famous writer Charles Dickens. McNaughton's attorney followed Thomas Erskine's defense of James Hadfield from four decades earlier. He argued his client was insane at the time of the shooting and therefore did not have the necessary criminal intent to be found guilty. He called a medical expert who examined McNaughton and testified, quote, the defendant's moral faculties were impaired by extraordinary delusion. The defense worked. And in fact, the jury never even retired to deliberate. They just huddled together in the jury box and came up with the decision that he could be found not guilty by reason of insanity. The British public and press were outraged. Essentially, the public uh, felt that he had gotten away with it, um, that he had feigned insanity, um, and also that he was somehow um, getting off scot-free. And somebody else was not too pleased with the jury's verdict. Queen Victoria at the time had been, uh, had recently been the victim of an assassination attempt by somebody who also pled insanity. So she was pretty pissed about the whole thing. A few years earlier, a deranged 18-year-old man had taken a shot at the pregnant queen just outside Buckingham Palace. He, like McNaughton, had been found not guilty on grounds of insanity. After the McNaughton verdict, the queen reportedly asked, 
How could he have been found not guilty? He did it, didn't he? She demanded, actually, that the House of Lords come together and put together some more firm standards regarding mentally ill criminal defendants, which had not previously existed. What the House of Lords came back with is what is still known to this day by lawyers as the McNaughton Rules. What ultimately emerged from McNaughton is still really the foundation of every insanity defense um, standard you will see today. At the time of the crime, the accused has to be suffering from a mental disease or defect that prevents him from knowing the difference between right and wrong. The McNaughton Rules put a major legal stake into the ground in 1843 when it came to whether a defendant could be considered too insane to be convicted of a crime. So over the years from the time that the McNaughton Rules were established, um, with every new iteration of the defense, it seemed to broaden slightly. Um, And as we learned more about mental illness, we started to try to expand the legal definitions to be more compatible with that. You can see the trickle-down effect of that McNaughton case in later insanity defenses that allowed for broader interpretations of the law. Take, for example, the story of Dan Sickles from Episode 5. The New York congressman murdered a U.S. attorney near the White House in 1859, but the aggrieved husband was found not guilty because of temporary insanity, the first successful invocation of that defense in American history. And then in Episode 4, we told the story of Pittsburgh millionaire Harry Thaw, who killed the famous architect Stanford White because White sexually assaulted Thaw's wife. Harry Thaw, like Dan Sickles, was acquitted because a jury decided he was temporarily insane at the time of the killing. Then, decades later in 1981, a delusional 25-year-old loner named John Hinckley Jr. fired six shots at the President of the United States. Hinckley's acquittal, as we saw in Episode 3, resulted in a backlash against the insanity defense, and the laws in several states retreated back to a narrower standard for insanity. Back to McNaught. Andrea Alden. But ultimately, after Hinckley, it felt like we kind of slingshotted back. Um, so ultimately, what we came back to was the only one we're really comfortable with was, you know, did they know right from wrong at the time that they committed the act? So here we are, 176 years after the case of Daniel McNaughton, and its outcome continues to influence how many insanity cases play out today. Up next, modern brain science and how it could shape future insanity defenses. When it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally you want to find the best person for the job. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. Here at Aussie, where we weave each season of the thread, we depend on LinkedIn jobs to help us find the right person for our hiring needs, to put top talent at our fingertips. People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers, so LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and what they're looking for. Which means when you use LinkedIn jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than a resume. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your position. Your LinkedIn Jobs matches are based not just on skills and background, but also on interests, activities, and passions. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates. That way, you can focus on the candidates you want to spend time talking to and make a quality hire you're excited about. Post a job at linkedin.com slash thread and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash thread. Terms and conditions apply. Could listening make you a better parent, a better leader, even a better person? Could listening inspire you to start something new? There's never been a better time to start listening on Audible. 
Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. With Audible, you get access to an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, mysteries, thrillers, and more. For listeners of The Thread Who Love History, I recommend you go to Audible and pick up Bearing the Cross, David Garrow's Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. In Season 3 of The Thread, about the history of nonviolent protest, we drew a lot from Garrow and his work on Dr. King. Audible members can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible originals you can't hear anywhere else. Listen on any device, anytime, anywhere. Audible also offers free and easy audiobook exchanges, credits you can roll over for a year, and a library you can keep forever, even if you cancel. Audible, the most inspiring minds, the most compelling stories, the best place to listen. Get started with a 30-day trial when you go to audible.com thread or text thread to 500-500. That's audible.com thread or text thread to 500-500 and listen for a change. Insanity claims are rare these days. They are used in less than 1% of all criminal cases, according to one study, and likely for good reason. Richard Bonney is a professor of law and of medicine at the University of Virginia. The insanity defense is always an uphill battle for the defense because all of us are naturally skeptical about insanity claims. It can be hard for a jury to put aside the horrific nature of a criminal act in order to determine whether the accused was insane at the time. Many consider the insanity defense a way for criminals to escape justice. Attitudes about the defense began to change in the 1980s, after John Hinckley was acquitted of shooting President Reagan. Almost 9 out of 10 Americans polled felt the insanity defense was a loophole for guilty persons trying to escape punishment. Four states also abolished the insanity defense, and the law in one of those states, Kansas, will be considered by the U.S. Supreme Court in October, after a challenge from a convicted murderer named Craig Kaler. Back in 2009, a Kansas judge slapped the death sentence on Craig Kaler for the murders of four of his family members. Kaler claimed he'd sunk into deep depression after his marriage collapsed, a condition that led to him losing touch with reality. Now the convicted murderer, who did not have the option to use an insanity defense, gets to make his case to the nation's highest court. But even where insanity cases can be presented, it's not easy to win them. Richard Bonney again. Most insanity claims, when they are litigated, fail. It puts tremendous weight on the skill with which the defense is presented. And it's still hard to show the accused did not know the difference between right and wrong, even for those with clear mental illnesses like James Holmes. But just knowing right from wrong is not sufficient, says Bonnie. It doesn't capture what's really governing a defendant's behavior. The dominant influence on what they are doing is the psychotic process. And that's why we would say the person is not deterrable, you know, by their knowledge of the law, because now they're being, you know, driven not by their recognition of the law at all. Bonnie argues there's a better question to ask to get at legal insanity. The question being, does the person really appreciate, um, uh, you know, in an emotional sense, uh, the moral enormity or the moral significance of what they are doing, or has their delusional belief deprived them, you know, of the capacity to do that? And that's the key question. The basis of criminal law is the premise that individual humans have some measure of free will. We are rational, self-aware actors. We can control our choices and our actions and be held responsible for them when they violate social norms. 
On the other hand, the study of psychiatry and serious psychiatric disorders often focus on treating the ailments that prevent people from exercising choice or from controlling their actions. So uh, if we're talking about retribution and deterrence on one hand and treatment and basically nurturing on the other, they don't really work together very well. Andrea Alden again. And so the language and the concepts used by a psychiatrist don't map neatly onto the goals of the criminal justice system. So it's very hard for those two systems to communicate within one another. And what it has amounted to over the years is kind of a territory power struggle between the two when it comes to insanity defense cases. In a world governed by laws and rational choices, what happens if some of us, maybe even all of us, can't actually control all of our actions? What happens if our own brain goes rogue on us the way that James Holmes's did? The insanity defense is an attempt to take into account this possibility. But as our scientific understanding of the brain grows, so do the challenges of accommodating the complexity of human psychology within the law. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to symbiotica.com. That's C Y M B I O T I K A.com. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. You ever get the feeling the city walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating your soul? You crave wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe chase some elk, fish a private stream. Well, listen up. There's a whole world out there, and finding your own piece of it just got easier. Head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, you name it. Search by acreage, location, the kind of hunting or fishing you dream of. Land.com. It's where the adventure begins. One of the reasons James Holmes wanted to be a neuroscientist was to better understand his own mental illness. The jury at his trial got a close-up look at Holmes's broken mind. One of the experts at his trial performed an MRI scan of Holmes's brain and compared it to a sample of others. She told the jury about her findings. And there were several significant differences that were noted in his brain compared to the normative sample of people who are free of any disease. The jury was shown an MRI image of the top right front portion of Holmes's brain, the part that's important to emotions, motivation, and controlling inappropriate behavior. This part of Holmes's brain was smaller than 99% of the population. In other words, Holmes had well below average brain volume in those areas that are important to emotions and decision-making. James Holmes was not the first mass shooter to realize there was something physiologically wrong inside his brain. From the observation room, 26 floors up, a killer terrified students and others on the campus of Texas University. He was Charles Whitman, 24, an ex-Marine, a dead shot. 
1966, Charles Whitman climbed to the top of a tower in Austin, Texas, and opened fire below. For 90 minutes, nothing could be done against him. A tumor on the brain drove him across the borderline of sanity to spread terror. Whitman killed 14 and wounded nearly 40 more. Andrea Alden. In his suicide note, he said, please do a postmortem and examine my brain and find out what is wrong with me because I'm not myself anymore. And it turned out he had a rather large lesion on the area of his brain that would have controlled these terrible actions. Whitman's story was an extreme case, but it highlights well the biological foundations of violent antisocial behavior. Mental illness can manifest in myriad ways when our brains fail to coordinate some of the billions of cells they control. It is a daunting thing for doctors and scientists to try to understand. And it can be even harder to communicate that challenge in a court of law. The law is kind of designed as a one-size-fits-all, just focus on the individual and what they did, and that's it. Um, And what psychology and neuroscience are trying to do is saying, like, no, this is a much more complex system. There's a lot more you need to understand before you can make judgments about people's behavior or their thoughts or their actions. And there's a lot more we need to understand about our own mental health, too. Up next, we are starting to learn more about what makes psychopaths and others with severe psychiatric disorders tick, and how the rest of us are not as different from them as we would like to believe. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients, so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. HelloFresh makes cooking enjoyable and easy. How does it work? Fresh pre-measured ingredients and easy-to-follow six-step recipe cards with pictures are delivered to your door each week in a special insulated box. HelloFresh meals can be made in 30 minutes max. They call for less than two pots and pans and require minimal cleanup. This means you spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping and can use that time to do more of what you love. My favorite HelloFresh meal that I've tried so far are the maple and rosemary glazed pork cutlets. Frankly, it's not something that I would ever attempt on my own. But with HelloFresh's easy-to-use recipe card and my bag of fresh ingredients, I was able to make some amazing pork cutlets, together with couscous and a creamy apple salad, in just 20 minutes. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com backslash Thread80 and enter the promo code Thread80. That's HelloFresh.com backslash Thread80 and promo code Thread80. The case of Jeffrey Dahmer shocked the nation in 1991. Dahmer was accused of the murder and cannibalism of 17 men and boys. One longtime acquaintance describes Dahmer as one weird dude. A neighbor offered a similar description. In my opinion, he appeared to me to be a geek. And by that I mean a guy that stays to himself and just do weird things unlike anyone else, like suspicious. Dahmer pled insanity at trial. He claimed mental disease was behind his grisly actions. A jury in Milwaukee, Wisconsin disagreed. They found Dahmer legally sane. The question of legal insanity often comes up in cases of serial killers and psychopaths like Dahmer. James Fallon is a professor of psychiatry and human behavior at the University of California, Irvine. Now, a psychopath, or what's called a primary psychopath, is somebody I described who has no sense of moral reasoning. 
they really don't consider what they're doing wrong, even though they know you think it's wrong. Fallon is an expert on the brains of murderous psychopaths. He's found that the brains of these killers share similar traits, including a pattern of low brain function in parts of the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain, the areas associated with self-control and empathy. Many of them really don't have the capability to either understand what they're doing is wrong, or they have, they have these urges and impulses that are just like somebody, um, you know, I have the self-control right now not to pee in my pants, but come back in six hours, I'm going to lose that control. I'm not going to be able to do it. That's like that. Fallon argues that our legal and religious notions of good and evil are outdated when it comes to understanding such urges and the brains of psychopaths and others with psychiatric disorders. If you're a neuroscientist or in psychiatry, it's hard to find somebody who's truly evil. People with these psychiatric disorders can't be evil, right? Because they either don't know what's wrong or they can't even control it. So in that case, it makes the insanity defense pretty you know, odd because you end up with very few people who are culpable or capable. Of, the, of, of their crimes. And the difference between those with severe psychiatric disorders and the rest of us is often more a matter of degree than kind, says Fallon. And he should know. He's not only an accomplished neuroscientist, he's also a self-admitted borderline psychopath. One time, Fallon included scans of his own brain and those of family members into a study he was conducting. They were supposed to be the control group, the normal brains. Then he made an alarming discovery. Uh, then I got to the last scan, and I said, okay, guys, to the technicians, very funny. You've slipped in one of these psychopathic murderers into my family's scans. Ha ha. You know, we play tricks on each other in the lab, so this was nothing new. They go, no, 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 no. This is really somebody in your family. I said, whoever this is shouldn't be walking around in open society. This could be a very dangerous person because it's got a lot of brain damage and a lot of uh, that's very consistent with a full psychopath. And so I had to, like, peel off the name. Uh you know, responsibly, I had to do that. And I peeled it back, and there was my name. Fallon had the brain of a psychopath, but he did not become like the serial killers he studies. There's more to our destinies than just our brain anatomy, he argues. Often something in our environment triggers our biological predispositions. The vast majority of psychopathic criminals, for example, were abused as young children. Fallon was not. Still, what happens in your physical brain matters, and it's often not within your control. And whether you know the difference between right and wrong might be irrelevant to the actions you take. Andrea Alden again. And ultimately what it comes down to is we are now reaching the point where we understand that um, there is no distinction between mind and body. Like you are your brain. Your brain is everything. You know, if there are injuries to specific areas of your brain, it's going to change the way you behave, possibly make you do things you never thought you would do, like commit crimes. And the complex nature of the human brain remains a big challenge for the law and the courts to address. And the current system has trouble both identifying defendants who are legally insane and figuring out what to do with those who are convicted. There's a common belief that most defendants found not guilty by reason of insanity are quickly released, like Lorena Bobbitt was. She spent only a matter of weeks in a mental hospital after being acquitted of cutting off her husband's penis. In reality, most defendants who are found not guilty by reason of insanity spend more time in institutions than people who are found guilty of the same charges. This is Dr. William Reed again, the court-appointed psychiatric expert in the James Holmes case. People found not guilty by reason of insanity, they routinely spend more time off the streets than people who are found guilty of similar crimes, and particularly than people who have bargained their plea down 
to a lesser crime. So it's very much not someone, quote, getting off, unquote, with an insanity defense. The way that the system treats those who plead insanity stems from a broader misunderstanding of mental illness, says Andrea Alden. I think that insanity defense is so controversial because um, people don't understand it. People don't understand mental illness. People are afraid of mental illness. And the stigma attached to mental illness can poison how those suffering from it are treated under the law. William Reed again. People with mental illness, even severe mental illness, have a perfect right to be found guilty and responsible, just as they have a right to uh, marry and have kids and hold jobs and things, unless they show that they don't have the ability to be found responsible. In fact, says Reed, those with mental illnesses are less likely overall to be violent than people without mental illness. I am much more worried, and I think the cops are much more worried, about career criminals, about drunks, about crackheads, about people who are simply mean and antisocial as they go along uh, robbing people and mugging people and hurting people for their own gain. This is not a characteristic of the mentally ill, and it's quite unfair to stigmatize them with that. The insanity defense focuses almost exclusively on the mindset of defendants, and that's understandable. They're the ones on trial, but the determination of guilt or innocence in any given case, that determination has to go through a number of other brains as well. The brains of the investigators and prosecutors building their case, the brains of the attorneys marshalling an argument in the courtroom, the brains of the psychiatric experts making their analyses, the brain of the judge hearing the case, and most importantly, the brains of the jurors themselves. Each of these brains is human, fallible, prone to unconscious bias, prejudice, and mistakes, operating on incomplete information and imperfect science. It's hard to climb inside the brain of the accused and to understand what they were thinking at the time of a crime, whether they knew the difference between right and wrong. But it can also be difficult for lawyers, experts, judges, jurors, and the rest of us to know the difference between right and wrong ourselves, to make wise decisions about guilt and punishment, given the complexities of human psychology. Richard Bonney. These are tough calls to make. We've got tough calls to make about the clinical questions, and then ultimately you have a tough call to make about uh, how these legal formulas apply. Still, however much we improve our knowledge of the brain or the sophistication of our laws, it will not change the past. We're all with Aurora tonight. It was this night five years ago that mothers, daughters, fathers, sons, and friends were making plans to see a movie. Just after midnight on July 20th, 2017, residents of Aurora, Colorado, gathered to hold a late-night vigil for loved ones who died at the hands of James Holmes five years earlier. The mourners huddled together, holding red roses and candles. The names of those who lost their lives in the shooting were read aloud and white balloons released. Jonathan Blunk. Alexander Boink. Jesse Childress. Gordon Cowden. In the end, no explanation of the broken brain of James Holmes or why he opened fire that dark night will bring back the dead in Aurora or undo what was done. And the criminal law is not designed to bring closure or comfort. We can only do our best to prevent future Auroras and to challenge ourselves to take the time to remember what went before. Rebecca Wingo. 
Let's pause for a moment of silence. The Thread is produced by Robert Kulos, Sophia Perpetua, and me, Sean Braswell. Chris Hoff engineered our show. Next week, we return with a special bonus episode, one that tells the story of how this season of The Thread connects with our first season about the murder of the rock star John Lennon. To learn more about The Thread, visit aussie.com slash the thread, all one word, and make sure to subscribe to The Thread on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on iHeartRadio or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out at aussie.com or on Twitter and Facebook. If you love surprising, engaging stories from history, look no further than the flashback section of ozzy.com. That's ozy.com. As always, thanks for listening. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You ever get that feeling like the concrete jungle's closing in? You crave wide open spaces, the chance to chase your own dinner, or just breathe clean air. Well, listen up. There's a whole world out there waiting, and finding your piece of it just got easier. Head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, you name it. Search by acreage, price, location. They've got it all. No matter what kind of wild dream you're chasing, land.com can help you find the ground to make it a reality. So quit dreaming. Head over to land.com, find your open space, and get out there. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.